0: Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore this topic of zeal, this experience of having a faith that is ignited and passionate, but also the experience of how our faith and the excitement around it can dim and dwell lower than we would like it to be. And so today, I just have a couple questions I'm going to ask us. What is zeal? How do we lose zeal? And if we've lost it, how do we recover it? If we've never had it, how do we find it? In other words, how do we cultivate zeal? So what is zeal? How do we lose zeal? And how do we cultivate it? So let's begin with, what is zeal? Zeal is great energy or enthusiasm connected to something you feel strongly about. Zeal is great energy or enthusiasm connected to something you feel strongly about. We could say that zeal is sustained passion that keeps you engaged. Do you know anyone with zeal? Who do you picture when you think of zeal? And does does zeal and the person you picture represent something positive for you, or does it represent something negative? I picture two types of people. I picture the startup entrepreneur. You know, the person who has the zeal to go and sign up for Kickstarter and tell the whole world about why they should fund their great idea. These sort of entrepreneurs have zeal. They have passion, and it's connected to their great idea, to the movement they want to start or the cause they're going after. We've seen that sort of zeal. It's zeal. But then I also think of the terrorist. The person willing to disrupt peace, destroy lives, commit atrocities, all in the name of their religion or their political movement. That person has zeal as well. So should we ever want to mix zeal with faith? Do the two belong together? You know, if we go way back into ancient Judaism, around the time of Jesus, there was a group called the Zealots who were known for their subtlety. And they were uh, (laughs) zealous after God and restoring God's rule and reign in Jerusalem, especially by force. So in their zeal, they could justify killing people, and in their zeal, they could justify being martyrs, dying for their cause. So do we want to mix zeal with faith because we have these examples that hit close to home that make us think, no, we don't want that. How can we advocate for zeal? Because even if you put the danger of zeal aside, zeal can also be unappealing. If you go back to the Kickstarter social entrepreneur, the friend who starts a cause, and all they ever do is call you and tell you about their cause and how you can help and why you should be excited about what they're excited and why your life doesn't have as much meaning because you're not pursuing their cause. And they might not mean to do it, but their zeal diminishes your relationship. Their zeal turns you into a tool or a widget or a gadget to become a means to their end We've seen that happen with zeal as well, and we shake our heads and we say no. As I was speaking to some of you about this series in advance, and I mentioned the topic zeal, it was often met with pause, some hesitation, because even if we put the extremes aside, even if we put how people can be manipulated by zeal aside, we still know the religious person who's zealous for God in sincere ways, but there's this massive gap between the God they're zealous for and how they treat people. There's this gap between their zeal and how they actually live out their lives. They actually seem to be more zealous about ideas of God and God talk rather than conforming their lives after the image of the God they proclaim. So we have to say this. Zeal does not always mean authentic faith. If you had to pick between zeal and faith, I would say pick faith. And yet... I would say we also need to discover how do we mix zeal in with faith because the scriptures invite us to do that. I want to consider Romans twelve eleven. Paul writes, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Spude. That's the Greek word for zeal. Spude. It's fun to say. Try it with me. Pretty fun, right? It sounds a lot like speedy, spudé. When Paul says zeal here, he's talking about a liveliness of spirit, a quickness of heart that when you think of Jesus, when you hear his name, when you think about what Jesus may be asking you to do, you move in the direction of Jesus with some haste and with some speed and with some excitement because you want to be with him. You have zeal to walk with him. This is what Paul's talking about when he says zeal. When he says zeal, he says, you're actually fervent in spirit. He means that your spirit is alive. Fervent is literally boiling. You're boiling in spirit. Or as some translations put it, you're aglow in spirit. Your spirit lights up over the name of Jesus. Or the common phrase in some Christian circles, you're on fire for the Lord. It's all a way of describing zeal, boiling glowing on fire things you would never literally want to be but definitely want to be in the Lord Derek got that one once again zeal is great energy or enthusiasm connected to something you feel strongly about and in this passage that zeal is connected to Jesus Your enthusiasm, your energy, your all is connected to this warmth and depth in your heart that you have for the name of Jesus, and not just the name of Jesus, but his presence and his love and his passion. But this isn't where Paul stops. Paul isn't concerned about just mustering up your emotions so that you have a nice emotional high or a nice emotional state. He knows that zeal is much more than just emotions, it's a motivation. And as a motivation, zeal can lead us off course as we've looked at. And that's why this passage ends with a focus for our motivation, for our zeal to look at. If you're going to be zealous for anything, serve the Lord. We could hear Paul put it like this. Kindle your enthusiasm for Jesus. Keep the fire burning bright within you. So you're ready and you're eager To do whatever Jesus models for you and anything he asks of you. Keep that fire burning bright so as you walk in the ways of Jesus, you're eager to do so no matter what he asks of you. Your zeal must be focused toward him. In other words, be zealous to serve him and no other agenda. Especially not your own. So that's healthy zeal. A zeal connected to Jesus. A zeal that wants to seek after serving him and walking in his ways. Not a dangerous zeal, not a fanatic zeal, but healthy zeal. But we also need to look at how Paul begins this sentence with a negative. Do not be slothful in zeal. If we lose zeal, we become sloths. This is a sloth. You're not as cute as it when you lose your zeal, but this is a sloth. Did you know their scientific name is bradipus, named after Brad, who discovered them? And bradipus in Greek literally means slow feet. Brad was very literal. Of course, this is what sloths are famously known for, being really, 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 really slow. They're the slowest mammal on the planet. They generally travel no more than 125 feet or 38 meters in a single day. And if you find them on the ground, which is rare, but if you do, they only crawl at one foot per minute. So like watching me on the seawall running. (laughs) Paul acknowledges, if we don't have zeal, we will be pulled down to the pace of a sloth in our faith. If you don't have zeal, the default is not a fast speed, but a slow speed. You will be tempered. You will slow down. You see, this, this popular phrase in some Christian circles, on fire for the Lord. Why do you meet it with cynicism? Why, when you hear that phrase, do you feel like you need to qualify it or bring it back a little? What happens that we feel like that phrase needs some explanation? We don't want to describe someone as fire, on fire in the Lord in our community. We don't use that phrase, do we? But why? Why do we react that way? Because we know from personal experience that it's difficult to maintain the fire that we first felt for the Lord, whenever you may have felt it. We know that as we go through time, as we go through life, as we suffer in a variety of ways, that that fire seems too dim. And so when we see someone who's enthusiastic for Jesus, the cynicism kicks in and we say, just give it a little while. Just wait, it will temper and so that brings us to our next point. How do we lose zeal? How come we expect over time that the fire for Jesus will die down? I want you to imagine a campfire. And like any campfire, you have to make a very, I might even say ethical decision. The teepee method or the cab login method? Let's take a vote. TP method, cab login method. There will never be peace. Now, you've made the right choice. You've gone with the teepee method. <laughs> and I want you to imagine this campfire. I want you to imagine it burning bright, but I also want you to imagine the, the several different ways that that fire might go out. First, you can run out of resources. So you initially have enough kindling and scrap paper and wood and whatever else you deem necessary for burning, like letters from your ex. But if you don't have enough natural resources in the environment around you, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much resource you may have prepared with, you will run out of resources. The fire will die over time. In the same way, our zeal dies out when we think our faith depends solely on our shoulders. When you think that all of the resources that are required to keep your faith alive in Christ is on your shoulders, it's all on you. And at first, you have the resources that it takes. You're disciplined, you're energetic. You can do it, but over time, it wears down and you start looking around and the resources are too far away and the zeal dies. Second, you can neglect a campfire and that kills the flame. If you get the fire going and then you do nothing at all, The fire dies, that's it. In the same way, neglect can kill our zeal. If you have no structure or discipline to your walk with Christ, no self-control, no spiritual practices, if you don't ever pick up the scriptures to encounter him, if you don't pray, if you don't develop deep spiritual friendships, if you don't learn how to worship the Lord in this setting, your zeal will flicker and fade over time. You see, your faith might remain intact, You might believe all the right things, but your passion for chasing after Jesus and walking in his ways, that starts to lessen and lessen and lessen because you haven't provided any structure for the flame to burn brightly and to continue receiving the oxygen it needs for the fire to burn brighter still. But there's another way you can kill the fire. You can suffocate it. You can add too much wood Not enough oxygen gets in, and so it dies. The poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay captures this well. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. You see, when we burn our candles at both ends, we will burn brightly for a season, but we will inevitably burn out. And this has become such an endemic and problem in this generation that burnout has been added to the DSM as a diagnosable uh, disorder for people in their mental health and well-being. Of course, though, burnout is not limited to our work. It's actually easy for our spiritual convictions to take root in us in such a way that we work all the more harder. And so you start finding it hard to say no to good things because surely if it's a good thing, it must be from God and he'll give me the energy I need to do and go after that. And so you ultimately end up saying yes to everything. But over time, you do too much because you have no boundaries and you confuse workaholism or burning yourself out with being faithful to Jesus and serving him. And over time, there's not enough room for oxygen. There's not enough room for that fire to burn, and so it starts to burn out. You've smothered the flame. So you can run out of resources. You can run out of that self-dependency. You can neglect the flame because you never gave it structure to burn. And on the other hand, you can do so much in the name of the Lord, so much with your life and limited time that you can actually suffocate the flame. Is anyone tracking with me on this? Is anyone seeing themselves in any one of or all of these categories? But there's one more thing to consider circumstances can put out the fire. If the fire is set up out in the open and the rain comes and it has no adequate shelter, it will go out. Circumstances can kill the fire. And when it comes to zeal and faith, if you've been depending on your own strength, if you've been neglecting to structure your faith in a way that it can flourish, if you've been burning the candle at both ends, and then you go through a season of grief or pain or loss or suffering, when the rain picks up, when the storm comes, your zeal will get crushed. Because often our circumstances unveil what's actually been going on in our inner lives. And I know this all too well. When I planted uh, St. Peter's Fireside with my wife, uh, it turns out to plant a church, you need a lot of zeal. That is a prerequisite if you're going to go out and start a church. And so we planted St. Peter's and we moved back to Vancouver in January 2012, and we were full of faith. And zeal, we had fundraised, we had been trained, we were sent with a community of support and prayer. And then a year later, we launched Sunday services in this room and there was movement, there were people getting baptized, there were people who had been disenfranchised from faith, returning to faith, new community was developing. And some of you have been here since day one. It was harder than we imagined, but it was also better than we imagined. But one month, After launching services in November of 2013, one month on our fourth Sunday, a friend and mentor of mine committed suicide. And it crushed me. Now, before I say anything else, I want to say this. If you have suicidal ideation, if you think this world would be better off without you, I know you won't believe me right now, but you need to hear this. You are dead wrong. Your life matters. Your story matters, and this world would be significantly less without you. So if you struggle with suicidal ideation, if you even have a plan or a means or an intention, we want to encourage you to call a hotline or to reach out to someone in your your family or to reach out to someone in this community. We will walk with you through that darkness and not try to heal you with platitudes, but to bring healing through presence and friendship and patience. So if that's where you're at, before I say anything else about my own story, I want you to know there is no shame to admit that you're not okay, and that you need help. And I know from firsthand experience, when my friend Isaac committed suicide, it crushed me. Isaac, uh, he had baptized Julia and I. He officiated our wedding. He offered me my first job in ministry. He's the one who taught me how to preach and make jokes that don't land. I came to Vancouver with his way of doing ministry in mind. I actually came to Vancouver hoping to share how deeply impacted by him and Summit Church I had been with other people. And much of what St. Peter's Fireside is is because of the impact Isaac had on my life and Summit Church. That's not that I idolized him, I knew he was but a man. He deeply led me in the ways of Jesus. And then Isaac committed suicide And immediately ministry stopped making sense. But I was young. And well, I wasn't that young, but the church was young and brand new. I have this church plant and suddenly no desire for ministry. And I was hurt and I was grieving and I was confused, but I still had faith in Jesus. That hadn't changed. I just found out I no longer had any zeal. So I just threw myself into the work. So just be faithful. Just do the work. Work hard for the Lord, but with no zeal. And I started going through the motions. I did what was required of me me, as best as I could. I preached. I counseled. I tried to lead this church. And six months after his death, I was burning out. And Don Lewis and a few other leaders in our community gently forced me to take one month off, which they say you should never do in the first year of a church plant. And I'm so thankful for the loving support of leaders like Don and others who say your life and your well-being is not worth sacrificing on the mantle of ministry. But what happens when you have faith without zeal? What happens? Well, Paul says that we become slothful. Essentially, our hearts grow slow and indifferent. We start going through the motions. We lack a spiritual fervor And then cynicism creeps up or skepticism creeps up. Unhealthy doubt starts to settle in our souls. And so we might not lose our faith in Jesus. We might believe all the same things with the same conviction. But if we're not zealous and eager to serve him, to walk with him, we will serve something or someone else. And ultimately, we usually turn inward and start serving ourselves, doing whatever we want serving our own whims and fancies and desires and sinful inclinations. And I'm not saying this from an ivory tower. I'm simply reflecting upon what my life looked like in that season where I lost zeal for walking with Jesus. You know, my heart was aching. I was was full of grief. And this deep indifference toward all things started to grow. And I went through a dark season of depression. And over time, it became easier and easier to justify indulging in my own wants, whims, and desires, and sins. Because I had faith, but no zeal. I believed the right things, but I had no passion to walk with Jesus in doing the right things. I had the outward appearance that all was well. But inwardly, there was no fire for a season. So I know what it is to lose zeal. This is not just some idealism. And without zeal, my faith slowed and it struggled and it was hard to move forward. But looking back now from this vantage point, I can see how God uses circumstances to remove any zeal that isn't rooted in Christ. See, yes, I was passionately pursuing God as I said, I'm going to plant a church. But I was also depending on my own strength and creativity to do so, more so than on prayer. Yes, my heart beat for Jesus, but I also found it easy to shortcut necessary spiritual disciplines. Oh, my scripture reading today can wait because this meeting is more important. I can just cut this prayer time down because there's so many things I need to do for the Lord. I have no time to pray. You see, the circumstances hit my life, and it snuffed out zeal. But if I'm honest, my zeal was already not sustainable. It was already in danger. I just didn't know it at the time that my zeal was already compromised because I had split it between two focuses. I was sincerely jealous for Jesus plus achieving all my hopes, wants, and dreams, and plans for my life. And anytime you have Jesus plus, it is always bad math. It's always bad math. Zeal needs simplicity in focus. Say it with me. Zeal needs simplicity in focus. It's been five and a half years since Isaac died. And it still hurts. It still hurts to think about. It still causes me a little bit of existential angst in ministry from time to time, but not nearly in the same way. And I've grieved. And I've come out of the other side of grief. And I carry this wound as part of my life. But I've also come to see that recovery with Christ never moves at the pace you want it to move, always at the pace that Jesus says it needs to move. Because when Jesus wants to heal and make something whole, he doesn't want to leave things half done. He wants to make you truly whole and healed. And it takes time. So I want to say this to you if you're currently in a season where you feel like the wind has been knocked out of you. You don't have to muster up zeal. In fact, that's the last thing you need to do right now. You don't have to muster up zeal. You don't have to pretend like you're excited if you're not. Right now, you need to be exactly where you are. And I would say perhaps invite some people to sit with you, to know what's going on, to grieve with you, to shed tears with you, and to walk with you down the road at the pace God desires. But personally, as I've gone through grief, as I've journeyed through depression, as I've seen healing and recovery in my own life, I felt God nudging me, especially over this past year, to recover my zeal or to discover it again for the first time, to recover a healthy zeal, a simplicity of focus. So if we've lost zeal, how do we recover it? If we've never had zeal, how do we find it? How do we cultivate zeal? Well, let's go back to our campfire. The first movement in recovering zeal is this. We have to move from self-sufficiency to interdependence. Self-sufficiency to interdependence. If you look at Romans 12, 11, in different translations, you'll notice that these Bibles come at it in different ways. The NIV says, keep your spiritual fervor. And the RSV says, be aglow in the big S spirit. So is Paul telling us to keep our spirits energized? Or is he telling us to be excited about the Holy Spirit? Well, translators can't agree. But in the big picture, it's both. You can't keep your own spirit alive for long without an ongoing encounter of God's love in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, we live in a generation that has been taught and told that your autonomy and your ability to chase after your dreams is the ultimate thing you should live for, that you have and what it takes in of yourself to get there. Don't get me wrong. Some of that can be leveraged for good. But we have to move from self-sufficiency to knowing where our self-sufficiency will get us an end and move into spirit dependency. As I started to heal, as I started to recover zeal, it came through ongoing experiences in simple ways of God reminding me that, Alistair, I love you. It happened just the other day. Through the summer, I've been doing my morning prayers up at the law courts by that uh, water fountain. And I just thought God's roar is greater greater than any waterfall, especially this man-made one. And God said to me quietly in my spirit, and so is my love greater than this roar of a waterfall. So the next day, we drove to Shannon Falls because I wanted to hear a real waterfall. It turns out it doesn't compare to Victoria Falls or Niagara Falls, but it was loud enough to remind me that behind this cosmos, behind everything you can see in the invisible world, and in the eternal world, is a fierce and strong and powerful love for you that does not fluctuate in your circumstance. To be reminded of that, to encounter that again and again. And again, we have to move from self-dependency to spirit dependency. We have to see God speak to us and pour his love into our hearts as he promises to do. And if he says he'll do it, Romans 5.5, 5, I only think it's fair we hold him to his word. I only think it's fair to say, if you're a father who loves me, I need to know, tell me you love me. Tell me again, tell me again. As a father, I will never cease to take delight in telling my daughters that I love them. And I don't get the mystery of how God reveals that to each of us. But what I do know is he promises to do so. Keep seeking after it. But I say moving from self-sufficiency to interdependence because we have this tendency to make it just me and God and that's enough. But it's not. We exist in a body. We exist with one another. You cannot thrive in your faith alone, and you cannot sustain your zeal by your own strength, just you and God. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. I will tell you this. I would have not made it through my recovery, uh, getting out of depression, and getting better structure in my life if it had not been for friends who walked with me, for friends who knew what was going on, knew how to pray, knew how to be patient with me when I was being stubborn. I knew how to model the love of Christ in a way that made it feel more real and palpable, and my zeal grew in their presence. If we want to cultivate zeal, we also then have to move from neglect to structure. The great philosopher and spiritual writer Dallas Willard has famously said that grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. If you want to keep zeal in your spirit, if you want spiritual fervor, it takes some effort. You need some basic spiritual disciplines, solitude with Jesus, reading the scriptures, praying, engaging in deep, meaningful relationships in Christ, worshiping together with the body. But the point that easily gets missed is that every spiritual discipline is not about adding another task for you to complete. It's about creating an opportunity for encounter. Uh, In 2011, Julia and I got to spend six weeks in New York City with Redeemer City to City and a handful of other church planters as we prepared to plant this church. And one of the sessions that is instilled in my mind is when uh, Yoda, uh, Tim Keller, that's his name, uh, (laughs) shared and opened up about his spiritual disciplines in in a classic Tim way, you know, name dropping like crazy. I'll stop. Anyways, he said this. He outlined his morning how he reads scripture, and how he prays, and how he goes out, and he says, but at the end of the day, here's the shift that happened in my own personal devotions that made all the world the difference. Every day, I try not to leave until having some sense of the presence of Christ. Some sense of an encounter with God. You see, when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to carving out space so you can be alone with Jesus, when it comes to developing spiritual friendships or even worshiping together, it's in the hope of creating an opportunity to encounter Jesus. They're all means. That's why we call them means of grace. They're all opportunities that open us up to the great grace of God. And yet, the problem as a pastor, I can say this because I know many of you, is you have no discipline, you have no structure. And I'm not even sure you want it because I know what it's like not to want it from time to time. But without structure, our zeal dies because the fire doesn't have what it needs to burn. One other discipline was really essential to me in my recovery, and it's one that I think that gets lost in Christian community. It's, it's, It's really surprising. Gratitude. The Bible, again and again, commands us. Rejoice, give thanks. And it's not just like a subtle suggestion, like, hey, you might want to think about that. Like, this is a command. This is an imperative. Go and do these things, even if you don't feel it. And what's amazing is there's a researcher named Robert Emmons who researched gratitude and he has shown that gratitude can measurably change people's lives. Just a simple practice of gratitude, he says, helps sustain a grace-filled worldview. For me, it was starting an evening gratitude journal where I just wrote down five things to God that I was thankful for, even if it was like as creative as the mint in my toothpaste. But I can tell you that over time, gratitude begets gratitude. By practicing gratitude, I actually started to feel gratitude. And over time, gratitude turned into thanksgiving throughout the day, and it actually started to fuel my zeal, because I began to see all of life, all of the world, once again, as I ought, as a profound gift from God to us. Finally, we have to move away from performance to balance. If you struggle with burning the candle at both ends, let's admit it together. Your performance-driven and your self-worth can become directly correlated to how much you achieve. Your self-worth is the accumulation of all that has gone well in life or negatively, the accumulation of all of your perceived losses and failures. Don't get me wrong. Faith requires energy and sacrifice and leaving things behind for Jesus. I don't want to diminish that at all. But faith also needs boundaries to flourish and so does zeal. There is nothing admirable about lacking boundaries and balance. For me, it meant deepening into the practice of Sabbath, adding a communal element to that, which I've talked about. But it also meant putting a serious cap on when I can and can't work and having very clear limits to my work. And it came with a cost. It meant I became less available to many of you. It meant that I wasn't able to do everything I would want to do. But the gain was that I actually recovered my faith and zeal in such a way that I have enough energy, I believe in Christ, to keep running this race until the end. We need to have balance and boundaries. We need to be able to say no to things so we can say yes to the right thing. To say no to binge-watching Netflix tonight, to say yes to rest. To say no to picking up your phone first thing in the morning so you can say yes to reading a psalm and trying to connect with Jesus. So from self-dependency to interdependence, from neglect to structure, from performance to balance, that's how we sustain zeal. Zeal needs simplicity and focus. And all of these things help us gain that simplicity of focus. We need to encounter the living spirit of Jesus Christ himself. We need structure in our lives to help us have opportunities for that. And we need to balance our lives so that we're not uh, shortcutting our lives with burnout. But we can't control our circumstances. I have no formula for you there. None of us are going to get through life unscathed. But if you're going through a season of loss and pain and you're wondering, I don't know that I have this zeal. I don't even know how my faith is doing. I want you to know that God's intention is never to crush us. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. If your zeal is flickering in you, you need to know Jesus Christ will not quench that wick. I can tell you from experience, he's gentle. He'll meet you there. He'll walk down the road of recovery. He'll walk down the road of healing and he'll help build the structure around that candle so that fire can once again burn brightly once it is ready. But more importantly, and this is what I want you to take home, our zeal always depends on God's zeal for us. God is zealous for us. He's enthusiastic about us. He's passionate about us. There's a passage in the ninth chapter of Isaiah that often gets read at Christmas. Here's how it goes. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hopefully most of you have heard this passage. Do you know the last verse? The zeal of the Lord will do this. God's zeal for us is why he sent his son into the world. God's energy and enthusiasm and passion about us is why Jesus incarnated on this earth and carried a cross through the dirt and was crucified upon it for the redemption of our lives. All because God is zealous For us and passionate about us and loves us. The most passionate people I know in the Christian faith who have healthy zeal always have this in common. They know that God's love for them is greater than their love for God, and that spurs them on all the more because God loved us first. God is zealous for us, it does not flicker and fade, it is steadfast and unchanging. And so our zeal often corresponds to our sense of God's zeal. And all these movements I talked about, moving from self-sufficiency to interdependence, moving from neglect to structure, moving from performance to balance, we're just trying to create the space and opportunity to encounter God's zeal for us, his love for us again and again and again.